Kid's a drummer. I have no idea how that happened. But yeah, smart Alex, sit down. He said he had a hard time understanding that too. So, um, yes. All right, pipe down from the front row. We're this morning going to look in uh, the New Testament book of Acts, the, uh, the eighth chapter. We're going to begin at verse 26, this, this uh, story from the, from the ministry of Philip. We don't hear a lot about Philip in the Gospels, but this is one of um, the stories of, of the way God used and, and worked and moved in his life. And uh, as with always, when we approach the Scriptures, it's not only about hearing what God did, but understanding what God is still doing and how God continues to call and to shape and to, to challenge us in our faith. So, let's go to Acts chapter 8. We're going to begin again, begin as I mentioned, again at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandek, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, we pray here God's blessing on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that you would speak to us today, and that in our hearts and in our lives, we would meet your voice with rejoicing, with gladness for the way that you continue to work in the lives of those who follow in the way of Jesus. Bless these moments. and May they be pleasing to you. We pray in Christ. Amen. When um, somebody studies preaching, or even, I think, public speaking, uh, we call it, uh, the, the fancy word we use, uh, in academ academia is homiletics. When you study homiletics and, and you have an opportunity to, to listen to speakers and teachers and, and other pastors, uh, eventually you learn that there are some techniques that they recommend you avoid. 
there's certain things that, that it's recommended you, you don't really do because they're kind of tired or cliche or ineffective. And one of those techniques uh, that will usually cause, especially among preachers or speakers or teachers, their eyes to roll, is that um, technique of starting a, a word or a speech or a sermon with a definition. You know, according to Webster's Dictionary, such and such means such and such. They tell you that's generally that not the most effective way to hook people, to, to get them interested in what you're going to talk about. They say, say they should avoid that. So with that in mind, according to Webster's Dictionary, the definition of innovation is the introduction of something new. The introduction of something new. That's not earth-shattering. And many of us may be inclined to, to, to believe or to, to even to say that we embrace innovation. We embrace new things. But I'm not sure that we always do. In fact, I'm sure that often we don't. Because new things, innovation, in and of itself means things change. Because if something is introduced that is new, it stands to some degree of logic that new things are going to replace old things. New ways of doing things, new ways of experience are going to replace something else, something that may have been familiar, comfortable, cherished at one point. And so we tend, corporately, not, not all of us, but, but many tend to kind of push back against innovation, against new things. And this is historic. This isn't just, and this isn't just talking in the church world. This is talking about whether it's in our families, in our workplace, in our communities, certainly in our churches or in our other organizations, in our experiences of life. We, we tend to push back. I, I came across a few things this week as I was preparing. In 1803... A preacher by the name of Jedediah Morris. Jedediah. Now that just, that sounds stoic to me. That sounds serious. But this is what he said. He said, let us guard against the insidious encroachments of innovation. That evil and beguiling spirit which is now stalking to and fro through the earth seeking whom he may destroy. Now, now hear that. He's not talking even about anything specific. He's talking about innovation in general, anything new. How do you think he'd like this service? Just guessing. Um, anything new, innovation. That gets, now, we can get specific examples. Uh, in, in 1795, a few years before Jedediah, a German writer by the name of Johann Heinzmann warned people about this new thing that was happening. Now, it wasn't new in that it was the first time it had ever done, but it was becoming more um, common. And this new thing was reading. He said that consuming words leads to weakness of the eyes. Heat rashes, gout, arthritis, hemorrhoids. I don't, Never mind. Um, <laughs> asthma, asthma, apoplexy, pulmonary disease, indigestion, blocking of the bowels, nervous disorder, migraines, epilepsy, hypochondria, and melancholy. Be careful about reading. Now, he was a writer. I'm not sure how that worked. In 1854, Henry David Thoreau 
criticized the construction of the magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas. He said, but Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate. 1906, composer John Philip Sousa. John, do you know Sousa? Can you play Sousa? Okay. Lamented that phonographs were causing the deterioration of American music. They think he'd think about iPods. Um, in 1926, the Knights of Columbus warned that the telephone would break up home life and the old practice of visiting friends. <laughs> what do you think they'd say about the cell phone? They'd say it did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe so. About the same time, a dean of Princeton observed that cars were becoming a threat to America's young people. The general effect of the automobile, wrote Howard McClenahan, was to make the present generation look lightly at the moral code. He warned that youths with cars would begin to drive all over the place on Sundays, everywhere but church. <laughs> Finally, in 2008, the Atlantic magazine asked this question, is Google making us stupid? Now, please understand, I'm not advocating for all change, and I think there are questions to be asked when things change, when things innovate. There's pros and cons to anything. But here's the reality. This is kind of funny because these innovative, earth-shattering, threatening things like reading because books were becoming readily available or um, cars in which young people could travel around or telegraphs or phonographs or phones, all of these things we look back and see as just the natural progression of human existence. In fact, we can't imagine our life without any of most of these things now, uh, probably any of these things. The reality is the human condition, the, the human experience is change. Everything in life leads to some sort of change. We don't always embrace it, but we have to kind of recognize it. What is true of the human condition is true of the church. We are called to recognize the value of innovation, the introduction of something new. The Gospels are full of that kind of a narrative in, in a very broad understanding of what that means. But, but the reality is, we're constantly called to change. The question is, what are the truths that govern that? How do we understand that? And we start with this truth. The church is called to be in motion. The church is absolutely called to be in motion. Now, remember, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about location, building, bricks and mortar, place. We're talking about people. And when you turn to Acts chapter 8, if you go back to the very, very beginning of Acts chapter 8, the, the beginning verses which I didn't read, but it sets the continuity of the story. It sets the context. I want you to hear what happens in the first few verses before we got to the part we read from Philip. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. On that day was the day Stephen was stoned. Just prior to this was the stoning of Stephen. And if you remember, as the Scripture is going to mention in a moment, it was Paul or Saul 
who was the catalyst in that stoning. The same one who would very shortly have his life changed by an encounter with Jesus and who would become probably the strongest proponent of innovation in the, the, the ministry of the church. But not yet. On that day, he's persecuting the church. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, again, I want you to hear, that doesn't sound powerfully significant, but it is vitally important in the narrative of the Acts, of the, of the book of Acts. Because what's happened is, up until this point, Acts 1 through 7, the church is located. And what I mean is the people of God, the followers of Jesus, are in Jerusalem. That's where Pentecost happens. That's where the disciples had gathered in the upper room. They experience the power of the Holy Spirit. They flood into the streets. They begin to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. And that is where the converts are born. And the church begins to grow. And, and that is the place where God is, because that's where the temple was. And so the temple is where God lived. So they were located right there in Jerusalem. They were located in a place they were comfortable. They were located in a place they were familiar. It wasn't easy, don't get me wrong. They were still facing some persecution. But it was a context they knew and understood. And I think, honestly, if you had asked them, right before Acts chapter 8, they would have said, we are really content to stay right here. We are really happy here. Let's stay with what we know. The problem is, that wasn't what Christ had called them to. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you go back and you read that, right before the ascension of Jesus, he looks at his disciples and those who are with them, and he says this, You are to be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem. Now, we've covered Acts chapter 1 through 7. We've covered Jerusalem really well. The thing is, this is not where Jesus stops. He says, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, now let's back up. Where does it say right here? That as they were being persecuted, they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then Jesus goes, oh, and by the way, just in case there's any doubt, to all the world. Get the point. Get moving. Get moving. They're told right at the outset, you need to be in motion. You cannot get comfortable in one place because there's a world for you to reach. And with the scattering that was, was, was birthed out of persecution, never lose sight of how God works. In the midst of, of a very unfavorable circumstance, a very undesirable circumstance, the church is being persecuted, the gospel begins to spread. And the gospel is taken throughout the Mediterranean world. It's the gospel that would change the world. But right at the beginning, motion. Motion, don't stay just in the places that are familiar and comfortable for you. Now, that sets it up because then when you turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 26, the very first verse we read, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road. Now, I love the way that some of the other biblical um, or Bible versions, the, the New Revised Standard, and some of the others translate that. Rather than go south to the road, it says this. Now the angel of the Lord appeared to Philip and said, Get up and get moving. Uh, that, that get up and get moving. Head out. See, Philip's been in this place he's known, and the Spirit's saying, you need to get on the road. It's the wilderness road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Begin to move. It's that image of moving out of Jerusalem, not just confining the gospel message there. We are called... 
from the very beginning to understand that the role of the church is to be in motion. The problem is the church too often becomes comfortable. We become more comfortable as a church in residence. Now, what's the difference? Church in residence is not just a physical reality. It's a spiritual condition. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the difference between a church in residence and a church in motion. But let me just kind of simplify it for our time here today. A church in residence is a church that begins to go from an outward focus of the gospel to an inward focus of preference. A church in residence is a church that begins to say, what is it we want? How can we be made comfortable? How can we meet our needs and accomplish our preferences? How do we kind of become a, a social club? You know, it's a cruise ship image that we've talked about before. How do we take care of ourselves? And that is the opposite of what Christ calls us to. Now, I'm not saying our preferences don't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter what we like and, and how we identify. But that shouldn't be our primary focus. Because when it does, we begin to lose the heart of the gospel. And I think we begin to die. Figuratively and, and, and spiritually. Or in spiritual and, and literal ways. You may be familiar with these kind of stories. Let me tell you one. Uh, when I was serving uh, another church years ago, there was a, there was a women's group in the church uh, who was made up of some, some wonderful ladies who had been faithful and, and had been meeting together and, and doing things for the church for, for decades. And uh, they, they were getting older. And the church was starting to grow, and there were some new younger women that had joined the fellowship and joined the, the ministry. And, and the older ladies of the church, they, they desperately wanted these younger women to start coming. And I remember they came to me and said, we want, we want the women to come, as if somehow I could like, say, okay, poof, they're going to be there. But they came to me and said, we want the ladies, these new younger mothers and, and women and single women to come. And I said, okay, invite them. Invite them. Seems pretty obvious. So they did. And a number of the ladies came to the first meeting. And a number of the younger women came to the second meeting. And they came to one more meeting. And then they showed up in my office and said, Chris, we can't do it anymore. And why? It's because they won't listen to anything we have to say. They said they have the meeting, but when they ask for suggestions or ideas or new things, every time we tell them anything, we get shot down. We talk about finding some other times to meet that are more conducive with it, and they don't want to hear it. And we talk about embracing some different ministries, and they don't want to hear it. And we talk about doing a Bible study, and they don't want to do that because it's not what they've always done. Because they'd become so focused on taking care of what they wanted. What they wanted was new people to come as long as it meant they didn't have to innovate in any way. They didn't have to change anything. Let me tell you, that did not work. And I'll tell you exactly what happened. Those younger women started their own fellowship group. And that's okay. That is absolutely okay. The older ladies didn't like it. I said, you don't want to do anything different than what you've been doing for decades. And that's fine. But recognize that doesn't work for the people you claim you're wanting to reach. They'd become a group in residence. They'd become inward focused. Now, extrapolate that out to the church. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. We become comfortable. And rather than focusing on what it means to be in motion, and what it means to be in motion is simply this. You understand your mission field. 
You understand who it is you're trying to reach, and you begin not to compromise the message, but to accommodate the means to reach the people you're trying to reach. Eastern European missionaries learned this decades ago when they went into places like Africa and South America and realized, hey, you know what? They're not really embracing Eastern European worship styles because it's not the mission field. You go to Africa today and you worship in Africa or Cuba or in other parts of the world, guess what it doesn't look like? It doesn't work, look like this. Not because this is wrong, but because that's not where they are. That's not who they are. They embrace indigenous worship styles. That's what we learn from the church. And Paul would become the spearhead of this. Become all things to all people so that some may come to know the gospel. And so the church is called to be in motion. Now here's an important point of this as we talk about what it means to move in ministry is that at the very beginning it says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go. See, now, now that's subtle but significant. We don't move because we choose to. We move because God calls us to. We learn to hear and be open to the movement of the Holy Spirit. We become obedient not to our preference but to God's call. That's what Jesus does at the very beginning. Follow me. Follow me. That's the call. Not go and I'll try to catch up to you. Not hope I'll show up where you are. Come follow where I am. And that's what Philip had learned. That's what the others had learned. They learned how to hear God. So twice in this story, it says God spoke, and twice Philip hears the message loud and clear. We're called to be in motion. And this is why that matters, because when we follow God and we hear from God and we're in motion, we will reach people that we otherwise didn't know we were even called to serve and to love and to live out the gospel to. Because the second part of the story is that Philip goes, and who does he encounter? It says in verse 27, on the way on the road, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. This was not the mission field Philip had thought he would be called to. Because an Ethiopian eunuch had two strikes against him from a Jewish perspective. One, he was Ethiopian, which meant he was a foreigner. That could have been any other. He was not Jewish. He was not of the nation of Israel. He was outside. So even in the holy temple, there was, he could stay to the court of the Gentiles, but he couldn't come into the sacred spaces because he was outside the circle, or at least they thought. So he's Ethiopian, and he's a eunuch. And that is a, could be a physical or a um, lived-out reality. It could, it could, there's, there's a number of ways, uh, terms that describes but, but for, for our significance, he's physically different. If you do not know what a eunuch is, go home and Google it. I'm not going to get into the details. But, uh, but if you don't know, and I say that seriously, go look because there's a lot that could describe a few realities. But, but he's physically and ethnically different. He is, brothers and sisters, a them. He's a them. Now, ask yourself, what do you mean by them? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Who's your them? Because we all have a them. They're not the same people. But, but who is it that's outside your circle? Who is it that when you're describing is not an us, not a we, but it's a them? It could be people that are different ethnically. It could be people that are different religiously. It could be people that live differently, have different values, um, behave in different ways. I don't know who it is for you, but I know this. We all have a them. That for whatever reason, we've put outside the circle. Now, we may not mean it maliciously. 
but we've put them out there. The Ethiopian eunuch was a them. And the Holy Spirit speaks and says, Philip, get on the road. Make them a you. Make them an us. Go share the gospel there. And that's exactly what Philip does. I mean, you've got to understand, he goes at the voice of God. He goes from a place in Jerusalem where he is speaking with the other apostles. They are witnessing to hundreds and hundreds of people. They're seeing thousands come to faith. Miracles are happening. This is big stage stuff that's taking place. And the Holy Spirit leads Philip not to an encounter of grandeur, but an encounter of one. One. Go share it with him. Go. That one. That one who is searching. Because we know that because he'd been in Jerusalem worshiping. Even though he's outside the circle, he's looking. He's reading the gospel. Or he's reading the, the prophets. And the Holy Spirit says, go to him. And it says in that second verse, go and hang out near the chariot. It's like a stalker's verse. Go kind of stalk him. And, and Philip does, and he gets close, and he hears, and he seizes an opportunity to receive an invitation to share. And that is where we lead to the key of all of it, the foundation of everything that we're talking about. Why change and embracing new things and being open to the Holy Spirit matters because of exactly what happens toward the end of the encounter. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip after reading the passage of Isaiah, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? It's interesting, it doesn't tell us exactly how Philip answered that question. This is what it tells us. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. That is what it's about. That is the heart of the, the, the call. That is the unchanging truth of who we're called to be. All of this new stuff that God's called Philip to do, all the new stuff that we're called to embrace sometimes is for this purpose, so that we will have the opportunity to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's what it means to be the church. And that's what we do, and we do it in different ways, and we're called in different communities, but the core is always the same. Are we telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ? Because if we are, I mean, if we aren't, it doesn't matter how fancy or, or pretty or powerful or um, well done it is, we've missed the call. Tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's amazing what innovation looks like in the history of believers. Now, Bill and I, Bill Hancock, we've been looking through old records of the church and trying to learn some of the stories of those who have come. As if you don't know, this church has been around since 1893. There's a lot of story before us. And it's fascinating to read the subtle innovations, the things we wouldn't even think as innovations. I mean, aren't really kind of where our mind goes when we talk about this, but like in 1960s, when they put air conditioning in the historic chapel, which was the church at that time. Oh, okay, air conditioning. We can't imagine worshiping without. We'd die in here if we lose an air conditioner. But it was innovative. It was new. Why? To create a better environment for what purpose? A more comfortable experience for what reason? So people could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. The days when microphones and sound system and organs, organs were once cutting edge and new. All of this was all for one purpose, to better communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
in the 70s when they built the, the, the education building. Okay, again, over here, if you don't know the historic chapel, between the historic chapel and the fellowship center, they built the Sunday school rooms for $14,000. Right? Why? To create an opportunity to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of what we're called to be, who we're called to be. The key is to hear from God, to understand that we're not to be afraid of change. We're to embrace it, not for the sake of it, not just to change things. We never do that. But because we want to be obedient to where Christ is leading, we want to know our mission field. We want to reach people in the best way possible to tell them the story. Philip tells the eunuch the story. And oh, by the end of the story, the Ethiopian eunuch looks in Philip and says, hey, by some coincidence, there's a body of water over here. Baptize me. I want it. I want to receive the Holy Spirit as you've received the Holy Spirit. I want to profess my faith the way you've professed my faith. I want to follow this Jesus who you have just told me about. And on that day, not hundreds, not thousands, but one comes to faith. Because that's where God had led. We are called to an invitation. And that invitation is to innovate. And what that means is to be willing to embrace something new, to share something that is timeless. And that's the story of Jesus Christ. The challenge we have is to be, it's always our challenge, to be obedient, to hear that, to recognize that, yeah, we all have our preferences. We have what we like. But what we're called is to what, where Christ is going and to be a part of that. Are we willing to be obedient, to hear that invitation, and to go where he'd lead? That's the invitation. That's what Philip got an invitation to do, and he embraced it. I hope and pray as believers in Christ, called into our individual mission fields, you know, your chariot that you're called to nuzzle up next to may be your neighbor. It may be the person who works at the desk next to you. Maybe the, the, the kid in, your na- in the community. Whatever that need is, whether it be as individuals or whether it be as the body of Christ, that we're willing to hear that and to follow the prompting of the Spirit on the road where He would lead. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray for hearts of obedience. Hearts that will receive the invitation you give us first to believe. Maybe we're here today and we don't even have accepted that invitation ourselves. Well, that's where it starts. To recognize that you have given yourself for us, that you have loved us enough to die for us, and that we have salvation through the power of your resurrection. Once we've embraced that, is then to embrace the call to go forth in ministry and to serve and to love and to to create an ever-widening circle so that them's become in us and that we can share the gospel, the story of Jesus. Create in us hearts and obedience and faithfulness. We pray in Christ's holy name.